All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What a terrific Tuesday afternoon. How are you? Welcome to the Jason Greger Show. Eminent sports leader. As always, presented by PlayAlberta.ca. It's like Vegas, but from anywhere. Even your couch, experience all the excitement at the casino on your de- desktop or mobile device. And if you're a first-time user, use the promo code CASINO50 for a free $50 wager. We have uh, lots to discuss on the uh, program today. Hope you enjoyed a long weekend. And it was refreshing having some uh, rain last night in, uh, in various parts of the province. We definitely need it. Uh, hopefully you have more. And uh, hopefully it was some sort of reprieve for all those who have been uh, battling the uh, fires for what seems like the entire month of May thus far. You had, uh, if, if you're an NHL fan and you're watching the playoffs, hey, he, like the first four playoff games of the third round all went to overtime. And then the uh, the fifth game was a one nothing victory for Florida. So that's five games, five one-goal games have all come down right to the wire. Sergey Bobrovsky, oh my goodness, goalie Bob is on fire right now. The uh, Dallas Stars, they need a win tonight. I would say it's a must-win game because to go down 3-0, come on. The odds of coming back from that, pretty slim. So a uh, big game tonight for Dallas, and uh, they could uh, get a little break. It sounds like uh, Stevenson is battling an illness and is going to be a game-time decision. Might not be able to play. Of course, he was the overtime winner hero in Game 2. Also, the uh, Calgary Flames uh, make it official. Craig Conroy has been named their general manager. And uh, he said, hey, the uh, top of the list for him of things to do, first thing is uh, call Mr. Uh, well, Lindholm. I don't know if he's their best forward. He might be the most well-rounded forward. Uh, he's a he's a pending UFA, and it was interesting what what he said. He goes, "We can't go into the season with seven UFAs." So you know, Backlund has uh, one year left on his deal. Lindholm has one year left on his deal. Toffoli has one year left on his deal. You, know, you look at uh, Noah Hannafin, Chris Tanev, Nikita Zadorov. They got a lot of guys with one year left, and he basically reiterated the uh, the Goudreau. Is it something that they learn from? But he obviously doesn't want to go into the start of uh, next season. Now, they can sign those guys to extensions officially 
on July 1st. But uh, you would think that uh, some of them, you know, Oliver Shillington's another guy. So that, that's seven pretty quality players. Now, you're, you're probably not going to keep all of them. You probably don't want to keep all of them, just in a cap world and where your team's at. But you definitely are going to want some of them signed to an extension before that. Uh, Dave Nonis is uh, joining him in Calgary, and so we'll see. He also said he's going to uh, – he stressed at his press conference the injection of youth. They're looking to uh, open some spots for some younger players in Calgary. And that's uh, – hey, that's what you need. At some point you need your young guys to, to step up, and they don't necessarily have to be your best players, but they have to play significant roles on your team. Like, you look at next season for the Edmonton Oilers. I think all of the veterans and their leaders made it pretty abundantly clear, all those who spoke anyway, at the end of the season, that uh, this team, they need to be better at limiting the major mistakes. And, and a lot of that's going to come internally. You, you know, hey, they went out and got Matias Ekholm at the trade deadline this past year. I, I guess if they don't make any significant move in the offseason on the right side of the fence, maybe there's another trade coming to the deadline. It's plausible. But if they want to improve as a group, majority of that improvement's coming internally. And it's a mental improvement. What did Ken Holland say? Every player can play defense. It's a willingness of commitment, desire, dedication. So that's one aspect. The other aspect will be they're going to need some of the young players like Connor McDavid and Leon Drossel. Yeah, they always want to improve their game. I understand it. But when you look at their overall contributions to the team, how significant of improvements are those guys going to make? Right? Like I, th- I think the room for them to improve is just a lot smaller than it is a guy like Ryan McLeod. I think Ryan McLeod has lots of opportunities. I think he has a skill set. Uh, we saw it in the playoffs. He wanted to become uh, more physical. It's one element. Right? Look at his face-offs. This guy's improved his face-off. He's like the anti-Nugent Hopkins. He keeps getting better in the face-off circle. He was 54% this year in the playoffs. Last year in the playoffs, he was 44%. So that's a pretty big improvement. He took almost as many defensive face-off draws as McDavid. Right? Like Drysaddle and Bukestad are their two main guys. But Ryan McLeod took some key draws for this team, and he was good at it. And, hey, if you want to get more ice time there's and you're a depth forward, there's certain things you have to do very well. Learn If he can be a 54% face-off guy, you know what that means? It means in the regular season, you don't have to trot out Leon Dreisaitl for 1,200 face-offs if you don't want to. Hey, you can limit and pick and choose maybe a few less for him. It's an advantage. You want to be a, a top-end penalty killer? Got to be reliable in the face-off top. So I look at uh, Ryan McLeod and the opportunity he's going to have next season to, to play a bigger role in the team because he's going to get a contract. He's going to get a raise. That's obvious. So there's a little bit more responsibility, sure. A little bit more pressure, okay. But when I look at his potential, I see more areas of growth for him. I would argue that outside of the owner's top five forwards, McLeod's maybe the most important one. Is there a bottom six forward you think is more important than him? I don't see it. And right now, I'd argue he's more important than Kyler Yamamoto. And if he keeps developing and he's taking key draws and stuff like that, by the time his contract's done, he might be more valuable than Nugent Hopkins. We'll see. So, because now I don't expect Nugent Hopkins to be a hundred point guy again. That was an unreal year for him. I, I'm not sure that's realistic. And I don't think they need him to be a hundred point guy. It's a nice bonus, but I don't think I need it for sure. Other uh, news: the uh, Elks. Uh, Preseason, now it's just preseason. They didn't play a lot of their starters. Competitive game. It was delayed for smoke for a bit. Then, of course, it was delayed. They had a, a major rainstorm in Calgary, but they, they got the game done. And uh, we will discuss that with uh, head coach and uh, GM Chris Jones. Will uh, join us, give us uh, his thoughts on kind of what went down, what did he like in, in that game. Uh, Woodley will be by. Uh, Grant Fedork. Uh, Dave McCarthy talking uh, all things NHL. We'll talk a little about basketball because the Nuggets are going to the NBA final for the first time in franchise history. And man, they look good. They look really good. Jokic has been great, but I'm not. Was Jokic the best player in that series? I don't know, man. 
Jamal Murray, you could put a real good case for Jamal. He was great, too. And the Heat, what, like, they're going to the NBA final. No team ever in NBA history has ever come back from a 3 nothing deficit. It's not happening with uh, Boston over Miami. The question is, can Boston win one game? We'll see. Uh, Jesse Granger will give us our uh, playoff report. Uh, big game tonight, as mentioned, for the uh, the Golden Knights. Uh, two overtime games. Uh, their top line of uh, Stevenson, Stone, and uh, Howden scoring uh, both overtime winners for them. But uh, Stevenson out, and that could be uh, that could be an interesting one to see how you know how that impact. That's a pretty big blow if indeed he's not going to play tonight. Gazola uh, Struds will be by. We'll get to uh, five questions. Tell me I'm wrong. Help me understand. We've got a little trivia for you coming up uh, right away as well. You can always text us at 10 12 60. Dial us up at triple four twelve sixty or email us in our Jiffy Lube inbox, jgregor, tsn1260.ca. Hey, guys, painful to say, but Kachuk's the best overall winger right now. I know Marner, Kucherov, and Pasternak are high, but overall, Kachuk's firing on all cylinders. And who do you see realistically staying out of Ryan, Kostin, Yanmark, and Bukestad from Kev? Is Kachuk the best overall winger in the game? It's hmm, a good question. You know, he's playing right now, so that's the advantage. He's playing pretty well. I'd have to give that some thought, but you make a lot of good points. Right? Like, he does a lot of things very well. He scored some key goals for them. But right now, as good as he's been, Bobrovsky's still the Smythe Trophy winner in my books. He's been amazing. Absolutely amazing for the Florida Panthers. Really good. Um, Ryan Kossin, Janmark Bugstad. I think there's a good chance three of those four return. Problem is I don't know which three. I think Derek Ryan's going to return. He's the one I'm most confident about, so I'd put him one. Costin's the interesting one for me because um, I know they'd had discussions, preliminary discussions during the year on a, on a contract extension, and uh, his initial ask was probably too high for what Edmonton wants to pay him in the role that he plays. So I think they would like Clem Costin back. It's all going to come down to what numbers are going to get. Now Clem Costin and his agent wisely are going to file for arbitration unless he gets a deal done beforehand. That's why you have arbitration is to use it because it guarantees you a contract. Now, he's not going to get enough that the owners can walk away from because that's got to be like an abundance of over, uh, I think it's three and a half million. He's not getting that much, right? So you go to, th- that's why we saw some teams last year walk away from guys and not qualify them because they were leery of what an arbitrator would do. They were far apart and they're like, man, this guy's got a pretty good arbitration case. I don't want to pay him 2.5 mil. And if you look at Clean Costin, because of his goals, and, you know, his goal totals and projections and all that, they're pretty good. So, and and Bukestad, I think they would like Bukestad. Like, Bukestad can, I think, make more money on the free agent market on a bad team. There'll be teams lowering the standings that will pay him. So the question comes, does he want to take a little bit less to stay in Edmonton? That's where I go. Hey guys, I think McLeod needs to work on his hockey IQ. He does things that don't make sense and catches teammates off guard. Mm, well, you and I see different things there. I think Ryan McLeod's uh, totally fine as a player. I think he, I think what Ryan McLeod needs to do is create a shooter mentality. And he, we talked about it at the end of the season. We had him on the show on Friday, and he mentioned, yeah, that's a big thing that he's working on. It part of it's confidence, a little bit. He missed 25 games due to injuries last year. When he came back from the first injury, took a few games, then he scored seven goals in ten games. It was pretty good. Then he got injured again. All right, missed another month. But even he admitted, right, like he's got to get more shots. He had no shots in seven of the 12 playoff games. In the regular season, 59% of his games, he had one or fewer shots. And I just, with his speed and his ability off of the rush, I think Ryan McLeod just needs to shoot the pill a little bit more. You want to score more, you got to shoot the puck more. Now, you don't just waste shots for the sake of it. I'm not saying just become a, a Corsi darling and fall from the, the sideboards all day long. That doesn't do you any good. But I think McLeod, with his speed, we've seen him at times in the slot area. He's passing up. you gotta you got to be more assertive and more of a shooter. So...
Hey, guys, what's your opinion on Canada's depth at wing and goaltending compared to other countries? Seems like it's a little bit weaker compared to previous personnel available. That one comes in from uh, training. Well, so let's look at um, – it's an interesting question. Uh, goaltending, yeah, for sure, I, I think you could, you, could, you could make the argument that, uh, you know, Canada right now doesn't have, you know, a, a long list uh, of elite Canadian goaltenders. Right, like if you look at you know Canadian goalies this year, you know who won the most games out of a Canadian goaltender? Gosh, it should be a trivia question. Maybe that'll be my trivia question right now. Let's do it. I like that question. Up for grabs around a golf at Eagle Rock. You can tee it up fifty bucks a day. That's it. And on weekdays at Eagle Rock, book your tee time eaglerockgolf.com. And when you go there, make sure you try. Well, even before your round, but definitely at the turn. Try the smoky. You'll never regret it. Which Canadian goaltender had the most wins in the regular season this year? Text into 10-12-60. Put their name and your name. And, yeah, like there's – I think it's safe to say that the – right now, Canada doesn't have as many elite-level goaltenders as they've had in the past. That's fair. Um, if I look at, uh, you know, at, at wingers uh, on Canada, I still think, you know, c- you know Canada's got a, a decent amount of, uh, well, a little bit, you know, a little bit older, but there's still some quality ones. Like, you know, what if it's funny, like if you look at left wingers, Zach Hyman had the most points amongst left wingers this year. Not bad. Um, you look at, uh, you know, Mitch Marner. Drake Basson's a pretty good up-and-coming uh, winger. Travis Konechny. But, yeah, there's, you know, Mark Stone when healthy. He's pretty legit winger. Right winger. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a valid, you know, we, we could have a whole discussion. I believe that at times Canada's hockey system, so much pushing about getting all the best kids together at such a young age, I think it's losing some of the skill development factors. I believe that scoring goals is a skill. And if you are putting these, you know, teams together or, you know, you got a bunch of 10-year-olds and let's say you get them from, just for argument's sake, we'll say you take the four best kids from Spruce Grove and the four best kids from St. Albert and the four best, best kids from West Edmonton and you put them on a team, 12 players. Add in, do you want to add in two more? I don't care. Put in five from each place. Now you put them on one team. Here's the facts. Those teams aren't scoring 10 goals every game. right? They're probably scoring five or six, like they would in their normal city. But now those five or six goals, you have a lot of those best kids who aren't scoring. They're not building up the mentality of going to games saying, i got to score goals. That's just how it is. That's what my job is. Because if they would have stayed in St. Albert or Spruce Grove or West Edmonton on their team, they would have been the best guy, and they would have been all the top-line guy in each team, and they all would have been counted on the score, and they would have scored more. It's kind of how I view it. I think that it's uh, it's not the best thing. I think spreading it around helps more kids learn to score. Scoring is the toughest thing to do in the game. And if you're not used to scoring, I don't think you magically at 16 become a goal scorer. How many guys in junior who aren't scorers suddenly become goal scorers in the NHL? If you're not a scorer in Bantam, Whatever it is now, sorry, U15, U17, right? If you're never scoring, you suddenly go to the AJHL or the WHL, and, oh, Jesus, guys, now he's a goal scorer. Now, you might have been a late developer physically. Okay. But I think it's rare. And so I think at times it's weakening the uh, the scoring pool. Just me. Many of you got the right answer. Many of you got the wrong answer. Con man will uh, tell you the winner, and I'll give you the answer when we return on the Gregor Show, presented by PlayAlberta.ca. We continue on Tuesday afternoon, Edmonton Sports Leader, TSN 1260. How are you? Jason Gregor. Connor Halley. Struddy will join us in about uh, 40 minutes. But uh, first, let's get to our big guest of the day, brought to you by the Hockey uh, Super League, a premier hockey solution with a clear path for long-term development, offering borderless hockey, including... Provincial and cross-province competition. Check out HockeySuperLeague.ca. 
A. As uh, Kevin Woodley from Ingold Magazine and NHL.com joins us once again. And, Kevin, just as everybody predicted, at the end of the regular season, Sergei Bobrovsky would be dominating in the playoffs. Didn't even start the playoffs, right? No. Didn't even start the playoffs. And yet, you know, it reminds me a little bit, and others have made the comparison, so I'm not trying to be first here by any stretch, like the year that Hopi lost the starting job, right? And watched uh, Philip Grubauer play the first couple of games, lose the first couple of games. And Hopi's a guy that had won a Vesna trophy at that point in his career and comes off the bench, and, and we're not there yet, but goes all the way. And certainly uh, Bob is on a heater like Braden got on uh, in that year. And, um, you know, it's funny because to me, the questions that arise from watching it aren't how is he doing this? Because it all looks very familiar uh, in terms of the technical elements of his game, um, the pace at which he's able to play, the speed, the power, the movements. Like, all oh, that's always been there. So the question to me when I watch this isn't um, how is he doing this? It's, it's how are the numbers so pedestrian up until this point? Like, how did you go that long? You know, at times, and we talked about this even last season going in the playoffs, like, you know, below expected in terms of, um, you know, save percentage and goal save, like, like not even playing up to league average. And all those tools, physically and mentally, clearly were all there. Um, so that, that's the question I'm left asking myself more so than how's he doing this now? It's like, what the hell happened for the last couple of years? Like, like where was this? Where did this go? Why, why couldn't he deliver it consistently? And you know, I think part of it has to do with the coaching change. Um, you know, and, and this one I don't have an answer to, but let me throw this one at you. We talked a lot about Paul Maurice with Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg, and we talked about Connor Hellebuck's strengths and relative weaknesses. Again, relative. He's one of the best goalies in the world. But his strength is if you attack him in straight lines, there's nobody better. And relative to that, if you go east-west, the numbers fall off a cliff. And when Maurice was there, and actually, you know, Rick Bonus, so maybe this is just, hey, in general, teams don't want to give up lateral plays, but especially when Maurice was there. Like, I remember shorthanded when other teams were on the power play, they would just let guys walk in. And it wouldn't look like the most glorious chance, but it was what they would give up with to avoid giving up a lateral. And as long as it was in straight lines, Hellebuck ate it up. Like, he, he understood the idea that if you come at me in a straight line, and the closer you get, the smaller the net is behind me relative to the space I'm occupying. He understands that better than anyone. And here we are when I, when I look at the numbers on Bob those first couple of years. And I remember mentioning this with you, like just getting killed on plays into the mid and sort of upper end of the low slot, like plays into the front of the net, up just below the hash marks, face-off dot to face-off dot, just getting killed on those plays for his first few years in Florida. You tell me, when was the last time you saw a scoring chance from there in these playoffs? Yeah, no, hey, they. Um, I will say Bobrovsky, though, like his saves on Ajo yesterday, a few of them, I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like his his ability goes side to side with his blocker now. And, you know, even he releases his stick. And I was reading an article, uh, I think it was Mike McKenna talking about how, you know, they work on that because if you let your stick go, you can get more extension and it's not throwing your stick. But some could argue maybe it's bordering on it. So we'll see. No, but, dude, we, we, we had articles on this at Ingle over the years. Like they practice it. They used yeah. to do it on two-on-ones, like yeah. the idea that, you know, a lot of goalies, and, and the thing that, this is the one, here's one that I don't understand. So in the first round of the playoffs, he gave up like eight goals on the blocker side, and we saw it early against Toronto. I remember Elliot Friedman highlighted it on Hockey Night, and he actually sent me a note asking about the numbers, and yeah, sure enough, like eight blocker side goals in the first round, more than any other goalie and all those things, but I looked at my historical numbers, and I'm like, man, like, that first round is a blip to me. That is not how things have tracked against him historically in terms of the blocker being a weakness. As a matter of fact, it's always been a relative strength. And part of that is Lundquist talked about this. Again, we've had articles on it at Ingle where he uses a very tapered, what we call a sloped shoulder uh, pattern on, his, on, his, on the, the paddle, the, the top where the, the shaft intercepts the paddle on the stick where the hand goes so that he can really choke down on it and get that blocker turned and square. See a lot of goalies where their blocker will sort of almost be facing the sideboards and, and what faces the shooter is the inside edge of the blocker wall. 
Um, he does a lot of different things to prioritize blocker coverage and the ability to square up and activate his blocker. And so it never made sense to me. And Toronto did, especially in those first couple games. Like, Matthews had great looks, and he always went after the blocker. And it, it felt like it was too often to be a coincidence. And I said at the time it didn't feel like a smart strategy to me based on history. And sure enough, it's kind of translated that way. Now everybody's sort of catching on, like, in instances where other goalies will turn that blocker and not get it square on the face, he's always sort of got it facing the shooter and presenting squared up to the shooter. And, and then the dropping of the stick, uh, whether it's a two-on-one or a play like last night, he got caught fishing. It's one of the things that you can actually try and target. He likes to poke check. He's been really good uh, breaking up plays with his stick. He's really effective, especially coming off his blocker side. But the one area you can target is, if he reaches across on his glove side, just like that chance, it delays your ability to get back. And he barely did on that Ajo chance. And again, like you pointed out, if my stick is in my hand, it slows me down. And by dropping that stick, it frees up that blocker. There's no more stick interference. So just get out there and make a save, almost like you would with your glove, like totally unencumbered. A lot of goalies prioritize their stick placement over their blocker placement not Bob. And so, as a matter of fact, on two-on-ones, not only did they use I used to watch this. It's not just that they would practice dropping the stick on certain situations. And Ian Clark still works on this with the goalies here in Vancouver. But on odd man runs chances, they would practice the placement of the stick, trying to leave it in the middle of the ice so that if the guy on the other end of that pass tried to go back the other way, there was a chance it would hit the stick while it's headed over. So these are all details in his game that have always been there. But clearly, as you said, I mean, he's on a heater. He is executing them all to the nth degree right now. Kevin Woodley joins us now at Sports Center, TSN. Twelve sixty. Uh, you look to the West game tonight, uh, Ottinger. It's been a close series, of course. Both games going into overtime. Uh, Dallas losing both in overtime. What does Dallas need to do better in attacking Aiden Hill in this series? Yeah, I think they almost got to go try try and get a little higher in the zone. It reminds me of some of the things we talked like like put him into a reaction zone. Um, there are similarities to Skinner because remember we talked about this a little bit. Like anything down tight and around the net, and it's for different reasons. Um, but in a similar fashion, like he's really good in tight. Uh, in Hill's case, he plays a really neutral depth. Uh, student from now Sean Burke, the goalie coach there. A lot of what you used to see out of Mike Smith. Maybe not. it's not quite as extreme. It's not camped out on the goal line, but you're rarely going to see him above half ice, maybe two-thirds up, up his crease. Like he, is, he is not playing in the white. He is always in the blue and pretty conservative at that. And It's a philosophy that obviously uh, Sean Burke you know, learned under Benoit Lair, and you know, a lot of his goalies have sort of played this way. And, and Aiden Hill is a guy that has, is having a lot of success with it. Um, when you're attacking him, though, like like you you got to sort of understand, like you still want to go east-west, but his numbers east-west uh, slot line plays, we call them, below the hash marks, low slot line plays, which is one of the biggest increases in offense in the NHL over the last five years of those types of plays. Aiden's actually remarkable at defending them, and part of that is, you know, he's got length um, in terms of that frame and his ability to extend those legs and seal the ice. But it's also just the depth he plays with. It's a shorter path for him. He gets there easier because he doesn't have to go as far. And where his numbers fall off significantly in comparison is the same type of plays across the middle of the ice, across the slot line, but above the hash marks, where you force him to do a little bit more skating, one-timers on the other end of it. Um, and, and I think, you know, like those are small details, but, like, you know, you hope that's something that's being emphasized. If you, because you don't get a lot of odd man rushes at this point in the playoffs, but how you attack when you do is important. And so, just like some goalies, you know, I remember having this conversation with Holpe. He would rather you force a guy to make that pass really in tight, close to him, because he felt like that guy, all he could do was redirect it. If you could get a pad there and maybe build a glove over top of it, that's all you had to do. I think with Hill, you need to put him in more of a reaction zone, um, make him use his hands a little bit more by making sure you try and complete those plays and those passes and get those shots off from above the hash marks rather than in tight. The one thing the Oilers did really well that I haven't seen enough yet from Dallas is as good as he is down low in tight, uh, some of the post-play habits are still a little sloppy. That's That's probably too harsh a term, but... You know, that's where you can get him 
opening up and reaching. And once he does and he's into scramble mode, um, you know, it's, you know, it takes a couple of those chances before you sort of get him reaching and opening up and not, not keeping that seal along the ice. We even, we even saw, uh, you know, in the tying goal, the Ben goal in late in game one, where, you know, he reaches across with the pad, but he doesn't have the extension. And because he reaches rather than pushing through his knee, reaches with the toe, he loses his seal and the pad that actually goes right underneath the, uh, the bottom section of his pad, he, which is, you know, frankly, looking back at it, not a goal you want to give up. You, you want that lower portion sealed. So if you can create scrambles, um, broken play type opportunities in front, and I think your best chance is to do it from below the goal line and around the goal line, make him move in and out of his post. That's an area where as good as he is in tight normally, you can get him sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, play. Like we used to, we used to talk about Mike Smith falling forward, right? There's an element of that when he gets in those situations in tight. Kevin Woodley joins us. I'm the sports leader, TSN 1260. I, I'm not even sure it matters to talk about Carolina's goaltender at this point because I just think the series is over. And it's not a knock on their goaltenders. It's just, uh, you know, Bobrovsky's been better. And I, I don't think that it really matters. Florida's scored just enough to win. So I, I do want to get your thoughts, Kevin. We had this question asked to us earlier about, you know, where Canadian goaltenders are overall compared to, to the rest of the world, you know, Europe, USA, et cetera. Um, is it just that right now Canada's in a little bit of a, a downtime? I got some good young Canadian goaltenders, but obviously, you know, not, you know, there's not the Waz and the Brodeurs and the Josephs and, you know, heck, uh, you go to Carey Price, etc. You know, Mark Andre Fleury's near the end of his, his reign in the National Hockey League. So is it just cyclical or are you seeing any concerns as to why, uh, Canadian goaltenders aren't right now on level as the rest of the world? Um, I, I mean, listen, part of it is cyclical. Part of it is you'll never see the advantage that we had, you know, in the era of the Bois and Berders, where it was all coming out of Quebec and nobody else knew how they were doing it. Like, like those days are over, right? Um, there are no, there aren't many secrets left in terms of how you do things, how you develop, how you coach. I will say that, you know, as, as a nation, the way we coach goaltending just because it's the private industry, right? Like everything is private. There's no sort of national goaltending development plan to guide that. And I think there are times where, like there are excellent coaches working within that system. I mean, excellent, world-class. But there are times where, where I think that the nature of that can be a negative compared to the more sort of, you know, nationally organized coaching curriculums that we see in other countries. Now, that's not to say they're perfect either, right? Like, there was a stretch there in the Swedish curriculum where, you know, there were a lot of people that would look at it and argue that it was too systematic, that they were creating goalies who all played the same, looked the same, um, and maybe lacked a little instinct, played a little too structural. Um, So, you know, there's no definitive answer. I do think that, you know, it's fair to say at least in terms of having guidelines and and some structure in place to create more support for young goalers at the goalies at the grassroots level without having to spend a fortune we have fallen behind we have not done enough to support volunteer goalie coaches volunteer parents the ones that go out with little Johnny and little Susie when they're 7 or 8 or 9 years old whether they're full-time goalies or not, and that's another debate we, we could have. There's way too many full-time goalies at too young an age in Canada. Thank you. So people make that argument. But um, when they are out there, you know, frankly, they don't always have the coaching. Um, again, you'll have organizations that will bring in private coaches to work with the association. Uh, but there's something to be said, and this is what the other countries do. They, they create – you know, I look at the Swedes, I look at the Finns. Like, they didn't go out to create an army of goalies. They went out and they deliberately tried to create an army of well-educated goalie coaches right down to the grassroots volunteer levels so that when those kids are out there, they're getting instruction that actually translates and not just challenge the shooter, cut down your angle, stand up more, right? Like <laughs> there, there's some actual thought process into it. And sometimes that thought process is understanding that we don't want to get technical. You don't want to be teaching a nine-year-old to reverse VH. Because you're yes. just doing damage to their hips and putting them in a position yeah. they can't actually fill the net. You know, so there are a lot of, and I got to be careful here because there are a lot of excellent coaches in Canada. Just a lot of them are on the private side, and and 
you know, that in a, in a sport that's already crazy expensive and a position that's even more expensive than, than, than shooters and, and defensemen, forwards and defensemen have to face, um, it's, it's an extra layer of barrier to, uh, to excellence. So, Kev, you mentioned that there's too many full-time goalies. So it hurts because they're they're not understanding. Because I remember I had Sean Burke on the show many years, and he said he really encouraged goalies to play out so they'd understand what the roles of those other players are. So when they play goal, they would know, oh, the defenseman's going to be here. The defenseman's going to be there. They could react to that. But also, is it if we have too many full-time goalies, we might have some kid who could be good, but he never gets a play goal. Or she never gets a play goal, yeah. so you never know if they're any good. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it's it's a bit of both, right? Like it's a bit yeah. of both. It's some of the best we've produced over the last little while, right? Like you look at a Braden Holpe, right? His dad was a goalie in the WHL. What's the first thing he he made sure Braden did? Played out till twelve or thirteen. Understood yeah. the the flow of the game, the reads of the game. We talk a lot about, and I hate the term, but the reality is it's true. Goalie school goalies, they get out yeah. there in drill situations, and I'll have NHL goaltenders, Jason, be like. I can't believe how well these 12- and 13-year-olds move. They move better than me. And a lot of them do. But do they process and read and understand the game? And a lot of times they don't. Uh, and, and part of that is, like, at a certain age, you can get away, especially if you're bigger than, than your peers at that age. Yeah. You can just move to the right spot, be there, and get hit. Do we teach them how to read the game? Do we teach them how to process the game? Do we teach them how to skate properly? Or do they get away with just being big and dropping? That's why I think a lot of the really big kids at a younger age that always tend to move up, like they can, life can be a little easier for them. And then when things get harder, they haven't developed that ability to read a release properly, right? They just, because for so long, they've gotten away with just filling that space. And so, um, you know, we just had actually had Sean's son, Brendan, on the because he's now coaching goalies down in Arizona and he works with the Portland Winterhawks. And, um, you know, talking about these same things, uh, how his dad wouldn't let him just be a goalie at a young age. We had him on the podcast at Ingle and um, just tons of great insights into that. And, he, you know, he saw some holes in the development models as well, like even language, right? Like we hear that all the time. And at the NHL level, maybe there's some truth to it, but nothing through you, right? We hate the five hole goals. Because it went through you. Well, if you tell a kid nothing through you all the time from a very young age, and we all groan and the bench groans when a kid gives up a five-hole goal, what are you creating? You're creating a kid that's going to default to his knees and make sure he doesn't give up that goal anymore. Well, now he's no longer protecting the perimeters of the net. And as they get better and the age moves up and the skill of the shooters is constantly increasing, um, he's not going to be able to make those saves around the perimeter that will be the difference maker, the high glove, the over the shoulder, because he won't have developed the patience because everybody's been yelling at him, nothing through you and groaning when a five-hole goal goes in. We've got to accept those goals sometimes and watch how we talk about them, the language we use. And five-hole goals is just one example of many, but it's, you know, it's that give and take of the position that makes it special. And I think sometimes the people – that are working with goalies at a young age, whether it's mostly like, you know, again, not educated on goaltending, they reinforce some of those negative stereotypes that, you know, are bad for, I'm not saying that's going to make or break a kid necessarily, but it sure doesn't help. And it's bad for goaltending development overall in the country. Even if it's just one example, it's one we see all the time. Kev, great stuff, my man. Uh, we got lots to talk about in the off season. Uh, enjoy Bobrovsky, because uh, by next Monday we'll uh, likely be uh, knowing who's in the uh, Cup final, or maybe it'll already be started. So uh, we'll talk about it then. Oh, I, good. I can't, one team could have be on their fourth stringer, and the other one could be on the ten million dollar guy who didn't start. If I could figure this out, Jason, I'm telling you, man, like I'd, I'd be able to punch my ticket here. Nobody can figure this out. That's <laughs> uh, Kevin Woodley from Ingo Magazine and NHL. dot com. 242. Uh, when we when we return, we're, we're going to get into a topic that I think uh, impacts a lot of you, yourself, or your kids. It's coming up next on The Gregor Show, a sporting twist, presented by PlayAlberta.ca. Welcome back to The Gregor Show, presented by PlayAlberta.ca. And, of course, uh, remind you, the uh, trivia for uh, Eagle Rock Trivia, the correct answer Canadian goaltender with the most wins this season? Stuart Skinner. He had 29. So uh, many of you got it uh, correct, but uh, Zach was the uh, was the winner. So uh, congratulations to Zach. Yeah, Stuart Skinner, 
most wins by a Canadian-born goaltender in the National Hockey League last year. Pretty awesome for him. I like it. Now, let's get to the uh, injury report brought to you by Leading Edge Physio. Professional athletes use aquatic therapy, radio shockwaves, zero-gravity treadmills, nomadic recovery devices, and Leading Edge offers the same to you because your life in sport is just as important. Go to leadingedgephysio.com. And uh, it's it's not just your you know your sporting life that's important. Important. I think it's your uh, your everyday life, and uh, we welcome in uh, Grant Fedoric uh, today. Um, we we talk a lot about physical rehab, Grant. Um, I wanted today to talk about cognitive rehab programs for people, you know, coming off concussions. There's lots more kids now that have it, and you know, it's interesting. Like, well, okay, we you know, you got to work out and you got to get back in for your legs and your arms and shoulders. And we just kind of like, ah, the brain's healed. Let's just come back. It's not really the case, is it? No, unfortunately, it's not. And, you know, this little thing called our brain that barely weighs three pounds uh, does a lot of things on a daily basis to help us get through a day. And most of them, we just are accustomed to these automatic high-level executive functions that allow us to do things, things like make decisions, uh, plan ahead, focus, concentrate, and unfortunately after a head injury, a traumatic brain injury like a concussion, that neurophysiological event impacts the ability for the brain to function in that way. You know, we again, we think about the knee and we know what it needs to do. You know, if you're playing soccer, it has to deliver a, you know, a strike on a ball in a very precise way in order to hit the net with a little bend or whatever, and it's something that, if trained, we, we understand needs to come back after an injury and it needs to be practiced and things need to happen. However, when the brain is injured, I think that, uh, unfortunately, once the symptoms of the acute concussion go away, the headaches, the, uh, you know, the issues people have with light sensitivity, other things like that, the mechanics, you know, that as that gets better, Unfortunately, some of the other parts, the software isn't functioning the same way, and that's what we wanted to talk about today. Okay, so let's get into that. The, how the software, what's the software and how isn't it functioning? Yeah, so it's these synapses that occur within the brain, and it's a, it's a very complicated organ. Um, those things that we were talking about that happen after a concussion that uh, people have trouble with, and sometimes for a long period of time, include things like disorientation memory difficulties, uh, trouble focusing or attention problems, difficulty processing information like complex problems, math equations, or even sometimes, you know, you're sitting there at a computer doing something that would have been automatic before, and now you've got to sit down with a pen and paper in order to work your way through it. Uh, Things like visual processing issues, uh, you know, tracking and understanding uh, the speed of movement across, uh, and other things, including even language problems, emotional difficulty uh, our problems with our affect, all of these things can be affected when the software and when those synapses aren't working the way that they were before the concussion. So how can parents know if their child or teenager and those synapses aren't working? Yeah, and it's not just a parent. It's a loved one, too, and we'll see these things with um Frustration, uh, lability, you know, the, uh, a kid or a, or a loved one's, uh, inability to control their emotions at times. Um, depression, other things like that can all, anxiety, uh, mood swings. These are all things that are going to start to show up when people are having, uh, frustrations with these, with these higher level functions. Um, and that's something to look out for. Other things, difficulty in school. So, so a kid, for instance, is trouble, having trouble focusing. They'll think, well, okay, they're going through a concussion, and it's been a long period of time afterwards, and they think that it's, you know, just this, this, this thing that needs to heal. Well, in fact, the healing might be quite done, and now it's something that needs to be trained again. And so parents or loved ones that you've got somebody that's going through this, or if this is you, and you're saying, okay, my headaches are gone, but I'm still having these other problems and you've gone for treatment, and they've sorted out some of the muscle tension, they've dealt with uh, things like range of motion or um, 
irritability and inflammation has settled down so the headaches aren't there any longer, but you're still having these other troubles. The issue is is that a lot of times people don't know that there is a type of training or a type of care or a type of rehab that can actually make a difference here. And in fact, there is, and it's called cognitive rehabilitation. And how new is this in North America? It's been around for a while. It's just not really necessarily been applied to people who have um, this type of injury, like a concussion. So it's been around for a little bit, um, primarily with people who've had injuries to the brain, traumatic insults like a stroke, for instance. And, you know, the fact of the matter is these injuries to the brain, whether it comes from, you know, ischemic uh, actions like a stroke where blood doesn't get to the brain or if it comes from trauma, the actual care afterwards can be very similar. Uh, and, and that's basically where it's now being applied. And that's how we're applying it. And we are treating patients that have strokes as well. And they're having these or long COVID is another good example. People who have what they're describing as brain fog. They just wake up and they don't feel like they're all there. Um, and, and it's a very similar approach, but it's very unique in that it's unique to each and in, each individual who walks through the door. So while the rehab is called cognitive rehab, it needs to be applied in a very specific way because how one person you know, goes through a concussion or a brain injury is going to be different than the next person. And that's, uh, that's no different than a knee injury, believe it or not, um, but even more unique to the brain because it's that thing that definitely makes us all so much different than one another. Grant Fedor from Leading Edge Physio joins us. So it's, you mentioned COVID fog because I know I know some people who still battle yeah. with it. And so mm-hmm. you, your cognitive training can even help them improve in that? Absolutely. And it has been and uh, been shown with research to show very uh, good effective results. As a matter of fact, uh, higher return to work rates than without, you know, in the 40 from 40 percent up to 70 percent with patients that weren't returning to work or having difficulty getting back to work. So um, we use a very specific program uh, that we that has measured results. We've been keeping track of those results, and that's why we're not afraid to sit there and yell at the top of our lungs if this is affecting you or if you're or a loved one is going through this, it's something that can make a difference in their lives and a very considerable one, especially if you talk about or think about the things that it affects, everything from our personalities or our ability to cope on a day-to-day basis to our ability to be very effective at the things that we want to be effective at. And, you know, it's even neat to say that there's even a role for this with people who are just trying to be even more focused in a high-level sport, for instance. Your brain might be functioning very well. You might not have any brain fog or any difficulty with um, with uh, motion awareness and things like that or visual processing. However, it can even be improved, just like your physical fitness can be improved and get to a high level. We can take somebody to another level using this kind of an approach. Now, Grant, here's an interesting one because I'm a big believer in preventative stuff, right? Like, because yeah. I know we've talked about this before, and you talked about it. You know, one of the big things is you know strengthen your neck muscles because can help a lot of kids, right? Especially young girls that are in sports. Um, you know, it's um, the highest rate of concussions came in non-contact girl sports and strengthening mm-hmm. your neck. So, uh, are there other like are there things we should be doing? The average person who doesn't have a concussion or doesn't have you know hasn't had a stroke, is there anything you can do to strengthen your brain that we should be doing now preventative and would if so and let's if we did suffer concussion would be would we be able to rehab or recover quicker uh yeah you know it's i think you see this on in the news all the time and we're talking about the brain as being a you know something that can be strengthened and certainly it's a great question to ask as we age i think everybody's afraid of that part of the you know of their world that's going to start to perhaps slow down and it can be trained and so so yes the answer in short is you can do things you can there are certain things that we can do to maintain our um our brain functioning and fire those synapses much like we do fast twitch muscle fibers in the body so but they need to be challenged and it needs to be challenged in a way that's no different than if you go to a trainer and say listen, I don't want my muscles to lose, I don't want to lose mass and I don't want to lose tone and I want to maintain my physical fitness throughout life. What do you do? You work out. 
Well, in order to do that for the brain, it needs to be specific too. You don't just go to the gym and grab some weights and start lifting 50 pounds and trying to curl it with one arm because guess what? You're going to injure yourself. Well, with the brain, you might not injure it, but it might not be as effective as if you take an actual structured approach to the training of the brain. And we use a, a very structured approach to, to strengthen those cognitive skills, things like uh, even giving people compensatory strategies. Uh, there's external aids that can be there uh, used as well, education for the problems they face. And obviously, we need to take them through a workout for their brain. And sometimes it's a pen and paper. We do use a computer system that does help us take the patients through a program. We use a program called BEARS is another example of one of the things that we use. And it's a very specific set of exercises for the brain to do exactly what you were describing. So, yes, prevention can, can, it can be used for prevention as well. Awesome stuff. Um, so Leading Edge Physio, anybody out there who, hey, if you just have COVID, deep fog, stroke, recovery, your loved one is coming off a stroke and, you know, they're, they're not getting to the level they need to be, check out uh, Leading Edge, the uh, cognitive, because, hey, our brain is the most important part uh, of our body. It's uh, It allows us to uh, to make a lot of our decisions, <laughs> the right ones. And uh, I love it. Grant, appreciate your time. Hey, listen, if anybody out there is struggling, we're here to help and your show is a great way to get the word out on something that otherwise people wouldn't even know existed. So if your loved one has, you know, gone through a concussion or anything like that and they're having trouble, we're here to help. Awesome stuff. Uh, Grant Fedork from Leading Edge Physio. Go to leadingedgephysio.com and you'll see all the locations, St. Albert's, Bruce Grove, Edmonton. They keep expanding. Uh, they got like a new one uh, all over, every week, it seems. I, I know they've expanded uh, down to Calgary now, so doing great but uh, you think about cognitive and i love what he said there how many of you have have probably had a concussion and then it was just like okay don't do anything for a week you sit around you're not oh i feel good and that's it but are you really the same because think about what you do you would probably go for physio on your knee Right? You have a really bad sprained, twisted ankle, you do physio on it. You're icing it, you know, elevation, you're doing something. How many of us, because I can tell you, when I got my bell rung, I did nothing. I didn't do any sort of cognitive testing at all. I wonder how many of us uh, don't do it and how much of a difference it could make. Because it makes sense, you think about it. Get your brain thinking again, get it working. Have some proper strategies to do it. So if that's you, and you, have, especially your son or daughter, maybe they're just not back to where they were, Check it out. Let's get to the uh, con man and a sports center update brought to you by Lifestyle Sig, family-owned business with four locations at Edmonton and Shore Park. They provide knowledge and sound advice and vaping hardware and e-liquid. Learn more at LifestyleSig.com.